0: Okay, we ready for this? Do it. (laughs) Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Comic Book Dungeon Podcast. I hope we all have hailing frequencies open, because this is our first episode where we talk about Star Trek The Motion Picture, the comic book line. So again, we're coming to you from deep underground, in the Klayon uh, Underground Comic Book Dungeon, my name is Mark,
1: and my name is Cruz. Coming to you from the frozen wasteland of the Wolf Spider Arena.
0: Would this be the Rora Pente, the the aliens' graveyard from Star Trek VI? That Wolf Spider, uh, Frozen Deadly Arena.
1: It, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: okay. I uh, I am really excited. Uh, I really I'm on the record as really liking Star Trek the Motion Picture. So what we're gonna do uh, in this episode is we're having a guest on later to talk about this first uh, issue in the Marvel uh, Star Trek the Motion Picture comic book series that debuted in 1980. But first, Cruz and I were just going to give a brief synopsis of the of the co- of the motion picture. The first three issues of the comic book are just an adaptation of the script from that movie. We we thought that'd be a little bit boring, or we also kind of just didn't want to felt like wasting time covering that so we wanted to get right into the new stories so what we were going to do is just kind of give a quick plot synopsis and just talk about some uh some things that we that were important to us about this motion picture or just behind the scenes things that really interest us
1: absolutely and yeah the it's definitely let's go straight freaking full blast into the newer content wholeheartedly agree on that but uh, yeah, we you know we've got to know where the source material comes from, and uh, it gets covered by our guests a little bit later. How uh, the the book line is specifically uh, licensed to only Star Trek: The Motion Picture, so a lot of the stuff you'll be seeing is derived from that movie, and and it because of the licensing agreement can only stem from that movie, and they can't really. Uh, draw from too much of the stuff from the original series
0: correct star trek the motion picture it's a really kind of unusual thing do you know uh any of like the history behind how the motion picture came about and again uh we kind of talked about this a little bit on air this is not going to go for very long i mean you could there's books on this there's whole podcasts, like three hour podcasts that talk about this we're just going to kind of crash course through this but yeah, do you know the story of like the development leading up to Star Trek The Motion Picture?
1: Uh, no, not really.
0: Okay. So originally, when they were bringing Star Trek back, they were going to do it as a TV show called Star Trek Phase 2. And when they were re doing like the remodeling of the Enterprise and they were reworking, uh, and they were working on, uh, what would eventually become the motion picture, the sets, uh, all that, that all spun out of Star Trek Phase 2. And they made the decision when they were doing the pre-production that instead of doing a, a TV show, they were going to do a movie. And they turned, I think they had like six scripts for the, the this TV show, and they turned one of them uh, called Thy Own Image into the script for the motion picture. But yeah, there's actually a great book out there by, uh, um, I think it's Denise and Ron Okuda, who talk all about star trek phase two and what that was going to be like uh if anybody is interested interesting um leonard Niboy was uh, I not i them doing that what's it
1: i said i could totally see them doing that uh you know taking a series and deciding uh maybe not and then making a movie out of it since they already invested so much into it
0: yeah and it's oh and it's uh michael it's Denise and Michael Okuda, I believe. Because they, they are big behind-the-scenes people on Star Trek. They've written a lot of novels. They've worked on the series. And, yeah, they, uh, they're the ones who fleshed out a lot of that Phase 2 work. Um, but Leonard Nimoy originally wasn't going to be part of the, sh- uh, the show. And they had brought on a younger science of- Vulcan science officer. And that is the same. The character is the same one who dies horrifically <laughs> in a uh, transporter accident in the beginning of the movie.
1: <laughs> uh, take that red shirt.
0: <laughs> um, the movie went horrifically over budget, and they had a lot of issues where uh the script uh there was a lot of kind of fighting over the script. People would show up that day, like the day of shooting, and they were like rewrites that were still being re- uh, rewritten. And what even complicated with this is the movie was taking so long to build uh, to make that. William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy, who've always had like identical contracts, they had a clause that if production hit a certain point, they would start they would uh they would have more creative input into the uh the movie. So when that hit, instead of just having like the director and Roddenberry in the studio arguing about what should go on in a scene, you now had two of the leads, I want to do it this way, or what if we do it this way? So it was just too many fingers kind of in the in the pie. Okay. Mm-hmm. Couple things that, because uh, they with the bigger budget, you could see a lot more alien effects than we ever saw before, and that's why you see a lot more aliens on the Enterprise. And there's behind the, the there's behind the scenes lore that Captain Decker, the captain, and we're gonna kind of get into the synopsis here in a minute. He was the one who put together this the Enterprise's new crew. It was on he was it was on record that this was the most culturally diverse crew of any Starfleet ship in history. And did you know that uh, Captain Decker uh, was the, it was Will, uh, Willard Decker, he was the son of a character we saw in the original series?
1: I want to say the name rings a bell, but I did not know there was a direct lineage.
0: Yeah, there's the episode, The Doomsday Machine. Uh, where we see a ship another uh, the USS Constellation was destroyed by this doomsday machine that's taking out solar systems that was commanded by Commodore Matt Decker and so uh, okay. that was supposed to be uh, his son
1: okay Well, good little tie in there
0: I've i spent my years like my my life studying this stuff so that was actually a few of the things that i wanted to talk about it was hard to go back and find the resources or the the sources because i mean I, this is stuff some of the stuff i had read like 15 or 20 years ago do you remember where you were or how old you were when you first saw the motion picture
1: uh i god i want to say um i remember watching it i remember where i was living at the time that i saw it so that would pretty much cover me up to uh 1990 so i want to say it was somewhere mid to mid to probably mid 80s when i first saw it okay and it was probably because we rented it from blockbuster or something or it was it was broadcast you know back when like broadcast tv was cool <laughs> But uh, it was always, you know, the original series, which was always in syndication somewhere, I always watched that. And definitely anytime, time that they would broadcast Star Trek or uh, Star Wars or any of that stuff, uh, I would always tune in to watch it. So I know it was more likely than not broadcast probably early, probably when I was like eh, somewhere between the ages of uh, seven to 10.
0: See, we were, I think we're, about in the same place. I was probably about ten when I first saw it, and it was it was broadcast on a uh, local basic broadcast channel on Saturday afternoon.
1: Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So for me, New York, it was either WPIX or WWOR, which were channels nine and eleven, and they always had like sci fi movies on Saturdays or something like that, and, and you know it was always either a freaking Bruce Lee Chuck Norris film and some sort of a sci-fi film or a Western and, and and like some military freaking type film always broadcast on like Saturday afternoons. And that's probably when I saw it.
0: It was a, it was channel 50 uh, Detroit. And I remember I, that's how I saw this. And that's how I saw star Trek two for the first time. Cause they had this cool thing where they showed, uh, the original Con episode, the Space Seed, and then immediately afterwards showed Wrath and Khan, which I thought. Oh, that's was awesome! Super cool, yeah.
1: That is awesome.
0: Um. Yeah, I remember being. I don't want to say confused by it, but just because it it's not the visually like you know the uniforms aren't anything like the rest of the movies. So you know they they don't have the original series uniforms. They don't have uh the the rest of the movie uniforms. So it was right. such an outlier to anything I'd experienced, you know, because most of my Star Trek experience at that point was the Next Generation. So it was so <laughs> different than anything else visually. So I, yeah. it was yeah, it was real different for me as a kid to kind of assimilate.
1: It it, it definitely is, and, and it's it, it had its own style and its 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 own imprint on, on on the Star Trek universe, and it almost felt like it was it was not Star Trek. Just because of how how different everything seemed to look. I mean, if, if it weren't for the shots of the Enterprise, it could have been almost any other, you know, late seventies, early eighties science fictiony movie out there.
0: It, I, the, the costumes are something that always jumps out at people when they yeah. uh, when they they talk about the movie, and I think Kirk's like admiral uniform we first see him in. I really think that's awesome everything else though is such a 70s eyesore (laughs) but i gotta say i i love in in the theory behind they use behind the costuming because the the costumes went over budget by like thousands and thousands of dollars and that was because instead of like in the original series everybody you see them in one uniform were occasionally like we saw a dress uniform man there's characters who wear three or four different uniforms throughout that series like I'm in my yep. class B's. I'm in my like uh, off-duty leisure uniform. Like I'm in my short sleeve like there's just constantly different uniforms and what the the costume designer was thinking was in a real military organization there are several different uniforms. He thought that added to the realism. I don't know how it added to the realism like the platform sandals and the <laughs> you know, some of the weird stuff like that and like the terry cloth like too tight t-shirts but there was also he had this idea that like like we were both in the military you know you would have like red troop or red platoon or red company like whatever where you would get tasked with like you know like normally i'm doing this but this week i'm doing this he had the idea because if you look at like the background of the everybody's insignia that would tell you like oh this person's medical like this person's security he had this idea that you might have several different uniform tops in your closet that had a couple of those different divisions because you might normally be security. But what if you're handling like radioactive material today? He wanted that anybody in Starfleet would be able to glance at your uniform and know exactly kind of like what you were doing and why you were there. Right. Again, this explains why there's costumes on top of costumes. And I went back and I kept trying to find where I found that all those different divisions from the insignia and that you might have multiple and it's like, you know colors in your co- in your closet because of that. I think it was an old issue of Star Trek the magazine, and I couldn't track it down. But uh <laughs> yeah, just real. I mean, it was a good idea, but just how it came together. I mean, it was the most 1970s thing I think I've ever seen.
1: Yeah, it, it was definitely a sign, a, a, a reflection of the time, uh and it's it stands alone because when how long was the separation between the motion picture and Wrath of Khan?
0: I believe Wrath of Khan was eighty two. Yeah. There was almost no sequel movies because, I mean, it made money because you had all these people, especially post-Star Wars, who were craving more Star Trek, but it didn't do nearly as well as the studio had thought it was going to be, and it was such an expensive movie. they The studio didn't want to do a new movie, and I'm pulling this from the William Shatner's Star Trek movie memories, so all this might not be necessarily... True, it's how he remembers things, but according to Shatner, the studio blamed Gene Roddenberry for the failing of Star Trek the motion picture, and he was basically, he was removed from the equation from that point on. Like he, They kept him on as a quote-unquote uh, creative consultant, and what they would do is they would dream up a script, write it all out, and then send it to him to see if he had any notes, and then they would just usually not take any of his notes. But Gene Roddenberry famously felt very bitter that he felt the studio had taken Star Trek from him, and he did not like a lot of the movies. He thought that they were too militaristic. Right. He thought the uniforms were too militaristic. He thought the tone was too militaristic. And that's why you see kind of a much different tone with Star Trek uh, The Next Generation. Why kind of, you know, like the, the three primary colored uniform, just how egalitarian kind of Starfleet is. It's... Not egalitarian, but just much more gender neutral. It's just androgynous, especially in that first new, like the first season of Next Gen. It was him t- taking Star Trek back in the direction he wanted it to, to be.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Something that within the last ten years that they've kind of settled is what year did Star Trek the motion picture take place in? Because I know for Whenever I've looked that up, when I was like a teenager or older, it would just say like the 2270s. And it was kind of a, a controversy exactly what year it took place in. Star trek.com has finally kind of put the mystery to rest. That Kirk's five-year mission officially ended in 2270, and that the mo- motion picture takes place in 2273 which jives with Decker's line of you haven't logged a single star hour in almost two and a half years.
1: <laughs>
0: so, yeah, the movie takes place in
1: 2273. Nice. Well, cool.
0: If you got if, if for people who haven't seen the movie, uh, just a quick recap we were going to do. Do you have anything else you wanted to add before we get uh, started on that?
1: Nope. Let's go. OK, yep.
0: 2373. Basically, we're just going to get down and dirty into this. There's this giant energy cloud heading towards Federation space. It's cutting through Kleon space to get there. The Clans attack it and they are this is the first time we see the new Kleon makeup with like the brows and the armor. Uh, mm-hmm. they get destroyed. It takes out this listening this uh, Federation listening post, but before it gets there, they determine that the cloud is heading towards Earth. Uh, there's only one starship in the area, in the sector that is able to uh to intercept it. Which there's that happens a few times, like in these original series movies, uh, in the original series. Man, what is stopping the Kleons from totally invading Earth if there's like no, <laughs> there's, like no ship in three sector? Well, they said starship, so I'm sure there's smaller, more intercept interceptor sort of ships, but not an ex starship like a constellation class destroyer. But yeah, so the only right. ship that is in the Sol system that can intercept this is the original Enterprise, the one seven zero one. However, as soon as Kirk finished his uh, his uh, uh, five year mission, he was promoted to admiral, and the Enterprise was like completely take like dismantled. It went back to its space frame, and because they were doing a complete radical uh, refit uh, of the ship, so the refit is almost done. But now, and it's, when it was finished, it was originally supposed to be captained by, uh, and this was handpicked by Captain Kirk, or Admiral Kirk, uh, Captain Will, uh, Willard Decker. Kirk uh, has been briefed on the cloud. He's the head of Starfleet operations. It's his intention that he's going to take command of the Enterprise, that they're going to launch at the ship's ready or not, and intercept the cloud. He has a bit of a power struggle with uh, uh, Decker, because again, Decker doesn't feel like he feels like Kirk. He's basically said he'd do anything to get command of a starship again. He's a bit unhappy uh, with his desk job, so he feels that uh, Kirk is stealing his uh, his command, and he feels that he's unfamiliar with the Enterprise's new design and the fact that he hasn't been out in space in years. You could make that same argument about Decker. He hasn't been out in space either. He's been overseeing the overhaul of the Enterprise, but. Kirk take, uh, keeps Decker on as his uh, command, uh, as his uh, executive officer. They're short a science officer, though, because their science officer was killed in a transporter accident. On their way to intercept the cloud, Kirk unfamiliar, or he pushes too hard. The ship, ship isn't ready to go to warp. They have a malfunction. Deckard saves the ship. There's some tension over them. Uh, this uh, means they can't go to warp for several hours. However, Spock, who left Starfleet to pursue... Uh, the R, which is a purging of all emotion, he failed because he picked up this this cloud. He wants to go investigate it. He comes aboard the Enterprise. He's very cold, very emotionless. He signs back into Starfleet, uh, takes his job back as science officer. With this, they investigate the, uh, the cloud. They find a giant starship inside, unlike any they've ever seen before, more powerful than they've ever seen before. The ship doesn't want to communicate. They uh they're able to get inside the ship, they're investigating the ship. Uh their helmsman, uh Aaliyah, uh, uh Lieutenant Aaliyah is killed by the by uh the the ship. She sent back as a robotic probe who says that they, the ship is uh one giant machine called Vegger. Uh Vger is going to Earth to meet its creator. Nobody knows what that means. It doesn't understand that carbon units are true. That's what they call people or true life forms. They, mm-hmm. uh, um, Spock tries to mind meld with it, realizes that this is, a mach- again, a machine intelligence. This all comes to a head. They realize that V'ger is a giant mechanism built around the Voyager 6 probe launched from Earth, that it's this probe that fell into a machine world that built this giant mechanism. To get it back to Earth and fulfill its programming, but on the way it became sentient. It will not allow its information to be sent to Earth. It's going to destroy Earth if it doesn't meet the creator. It burns out its transmitter, so uh, the creator has to come to it. Decker merges with Vjer, so it can get those, uh, so it can uh, uh, meet its creator. He does this because of his. Uh, he had a romantic interest years ago in Aaliyah, so he can be with mm-hmm. Aaliyah. Him and V'ger merge. They become uh, one intelligence. The day is saved. V'ger goes off and goes on its merry way to uh, explore its new consciousness and new uh, being. And the Enterprise saves Earth. And we see that basically it ends with Kirk still in command. And he's going to lead the Enterprise on fun new adventures. Yep. (laughs) Something I forgot to mention in some of the... Or kind of some funky stuff with the the series. I think this was when some of the supplemental information this gets brought up in a a couple of the novels. One that takes place right after the movie that I highly recommend recommend is called Ex Machina, and it really kind of explores the crew coming together under Kirk because a lot of them are resentful. They feel that Kirk kind of stole Decker's command. Spock, he learns throughout the movie that logic is a beginning not the end and that he kind of embraces his emotions a little bit more. So the joke the the book has him joking a little bit and kind of figuring out he doesn't how to embrace emotions without say being overly emotional. And it really explored. this original series episode where uh, Dr. McCoy gets married to this alien like leader uh, for the world is hollow. And I touched the sky. It's really good because they kind of, it's one of the few books that takes place in that Star Trek, the motion picture. Universe, but one of the things that they talk about was something that the uh, was in some of the supplemental design information that the transporter in this new Enterprise is so precise you can use it that if you're in the shower you can transport your clothes off and then on, <laughs> <laughs> and that's why like the. Uh, Ilea probe when she comes out of the shower is, like, because she materializes in a sonic shower, she comes out wearing clothes. It's because, like, the the the, the, the computer had done that when it detected she was there. And uh, I love in that book, like, Lieutenant Ahura kind of makes fun of that. She's like, you know, the human body is sometimes bloated, sometimes this, sometimes that. I don't trust the computer, like, some you know, to, to not transport some clothes, like, inside my abdomen. So they kind of make fun of it. <laughs> but that was kind of a, in, when the site to site transports were only mentioned once in a dangerous maneuver in the original series here, a few years later, they're just using the transporter so willy nilly, like, I don't feel like taking my pants off. Like, computer, <laughs> like, pants maneuver, breaker Omega-3. Um, it's kind of interesting. And if the, if you watch the movie and you're thinking, wow, the character of uh, Decker and Ilea. Are very similar to, or they feel kind of familiar, it's because uh, Gene Roddenberry recycled them and basically their backstories, and in Next Generation they were Will Riker and uh, Counselor Deanna Troy.
1: Huh, okay.
0: Yeah, he, he recycled that little bit. If you look at Next Gen, it has a bunch of his recycled ideas. Like, data is a. Or recycling of a character he made for a failed tv like a tv show that didn't get picked up called like the quester tapes about an android who wants to be more human okay and in that script he has a line where he's talking about having sex and he says well you know i am fully functional and programmed in multiple techniques see star trek uh, uh <laughs> yeah
1: content. with tasha yar <laughs> yeah.
0: so um did i leave anything out there
1: no, uh, that was a very succinct summary.
0: I feel bad. I feel like I hijacked the conversation.
1: No, you you you're definitely well more more well versed in it, and uh, have gone over it a lot more recently than I have. So yeah, you you pretty much hit the high points on it. Literally, uh, in my
0: eyesight right now there's at least eight figures from Star Trek: The Motion Picture looking at me from a <case>. <laughs> i have two like little put together veger like that you would uh like build a like you would get to get like the components from each individual figure to make it so i have uh, a complete and incomplete veger again like four feet from me
1: yeah uh, i'd say you were definitely the better one to summarize it all
0: <laughs> I, uh, some have said i have a bit uh, of a star trek obsession so yeah i i feel i've been preparing for this for years where, uh. <laughs> where people in high school were working on, say, dating and their social skills and trying to get laid, I would literally spend nights poring over like schematics to like warp uh, warp coils and uh, warp drives, just in case someday I ever got questioned on it. I mean, I studied that <laughs> shit like it was real. It just, it's finally paying off. You know, I didn't lose yeah, my virginity until twenty, time. but it's paying off now. <laughs>
1: Sorry, I'm trying not to spit the Mountain Dew all over the mic. Yeah, we, should,
0: we should maybe cut that out. I lost my virginity at 17 to a supermodel from Canada.
1: From, yeah, 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 yeah. We all did. You
0: don't know her. She went to a different school.
1: Yeah, exactly. It was a long-distance thing. Don't ask too many questions, all right?
0: Yes. Oh, I've been on record saying how much I really love the motion picture. I can't wait to dive into these issues. Uh, I think V'ger out of any other antagonist from any star trek i don't think anyone has captured my imagination more i mean he was this primitive 20th century probe who gained sentience and then merged with a human and is like traveling the universe or possibly multiverse kind of exploring what it means to be sentient and it was incorporating you know alia's uh, consciousness. Maybe those client. Maybe all these things that it had digitized. And that one book I mentioned is really good, the uh, Ex Machina, because it really Spock is still in telepathic contact for the first couple chapters of the book, and just his kind of sense of wonder of what this thing has become. I wish they've no story has really brought V'ger back, and I would really love to see like a next gen book, yeah, where they they meet Decker. It's funny in the book Spock calls the the new life form the Voyager. So I would love if it ever came back and interacted with Starfleet again. You know, like it's got all these personalities and this gestalt rolled into one, but just that whole concept really, especially in the movie, how powerful that ship is to meet the race that created it. And there was a next generation book where I believe we meet some other beings that were from that race, uh, that a couple data centric books like the light fantastic and a couple others. I believe. But yeah, just to know more about that would be fascinating.
1: Yeah. I I wish it had been touched on again by any of the spinoffs afterwards, but sadly now missed opportunity. I mean, it would have been good, at least a good, like two or three part or a season finale, something. It would have been awesome.
0: Yeah. I mean, we, we have more Sturtra coming out, so it's not beyond the realm of possibility that that will eventually happen. True. I think it's unlikely. It's, I think Star Trek One is kind of the redheaded stepchild. One of them of the, um, the movies. And I think it's. I, I'm not going to say it's a a good movie. There's definitely issues with it in the pacing, but I love it. I I I'm an unabashed <laughs> fan. The only one that I'll really knock is Five. <laughs> I've heard Shatner defend it, and he's talked about his original script idea that the studio uh, changed. And his original idea is even worse. It's like, it has uh, to do with, like, the devil and how it's, like, the devil that uh, okay. bewitched the crew. And how he has to, like, fight the devil while, like, McCoy and and Spock are on, like, the devil's side along with the rest of the Enterprise. I mean, it is it is just bad. And that can, Okay, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm remembering five now. It's where they meet, uh, quote-unquote, God.
0: What does God <laughs> need with a starship? Yeah.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. The final frontier. Okay, yeah.
0: Yeah, Shakari. Oh, jeez. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that the one
1: where Huru gets naked and dances?
0: Does the, the, the infamous fan dance? Yeah. Yes, yes,
1: the fan dance.
0: Which in Star Trek Online, you're, that's one of the things that you're. If you you can go to Nimbus Three and you can learn the fan dance.
1: Oh man.
0: Oh, it's so bad. It is so bad. But uh, I digress. Yeah, we. Uh, you have anything else you want to add?
1: no <laughs> so yeah coming
0: up we're gonna talk about this first issue with super steve
1: super steve nice. man that guy leaves a hell of an impression
0: So, uh, before we get started, Cruz and I have already kind of talked about, or in that wraparound, uh, at part, talk about our feelings on the, uh, the movie and whatnot. What are your thoughts on Star Trek, the motion picture?
2: Jeez. It's been, it's been a long time since I watched it the last time, but, you know, as a kid seeing it, I was 10 years old, nine years old about that when the movie hit and, it was the first time I was seeing the original cast of Star Trek in new stories. Everything else was seeing the old series from the 60s, you know? Yeah. So mm-hmm. here was modern production value provided to these classic characters that even I knew, you know, I read enough Gold Key comics and stuff to see another star in the cartoon and that sort of business. I, I was exposed to Star Trek enough to know all the characters and how they interacted. But to see it done with the the soundtrack, like all the all the tropes of going and seeing a movie in the theater, seeing it big instead of seeing it on a little black and white TV, right? Yeah. Uh, seeing it, hearing the, the the score, the music was fantastic. And it, it was at just at the time, you know, this is post Star Wars, where they started really trying to get your chest to rumble in the theater by really playing the score through some, you know, they invented Dolby, you know what I mean? <laughs> so all of a sudden, you, you got this clear sound and these deep bases. And uh, it was an experience going to the theater for some of those movies that were spectacles as well as pretty cerebral and and maybe that's the criticism of of this flick right that it was got to be a little bit too cerebral at at times but the whole thing was a cool idea right it's like V'ger was Voyager and I mean that was clever I I I got a kick out of it I didn't as much care for the new characters and and being introduced to them I'm used to the new characters being killed off you know they get introduced to die um so that was a little odd, but, you know, seeing the premise of the old gunslinger coming back to do his job one more time or to have to, you know, pick up the the badge and the holster one more time and, and step back into his old shoes was a fun way to have the characters step back into their old roles. And I appreciated it. I saw it a few times in the movies and, and enjoyed it, even even the whole self-serving half hour long. Let's, you know, look at the Enterprise for the first time. Um, but that was a movie Enterprise, you know. Before that, it was just a little model being dragged across a wire at, and yeah. get, with, the, with the whoosh. And it was those same stock shots that you saw over and over again in the TV show to fly around the Enterprise and really see it as a 3D object when I, I'd only held models of the enterprise in my hand to really get a sense of its 3dness was cool and maybe it doesn't hold up now that we're so so used to seeing those images and that stuff but uh, i i was okay with it uh, there were some quiet parts but it, it, i thought it wrapped up with a good um kind of o ish kind of an ending and uh, it it was a it was a feel good movie it really made you feel good about star trek and and revisiting those characters now the comic book adaptation i can't uh stand behind <laughs> as as much but not everything works in every medium guys no unfortunately not
0: i i absolutely agree i'm on record with the podcast in several episodes of the podcast i'm a star trek the motion picture apologist and i absolutely agree about vijer i would say of all the antagonists that we've been exposed to in Star Trek, I don't think anyone has captured my imagination more than V'ger did. And any story that has had to do with him, any of the short stories, any of the, the non-canon stuff, I have picked up and read. Just because that idea of it's Decker, it's V'ger in this new life form with Aaliyah, and theoretically all, every mind that it had uh, absorbed coming to terms with that becoming this new life form, you where it went, what it's doing... I just, again, nothing's met, captured my imagination more. It was such a great, great idea. And again, there's a lot of the movie that I think could have been done better, but just those concepts were just, just larger than life. Amazing. Yeah, I agree. It, was,
1: it, was, it, was, it was a really good high concept movie. Um, I, my, I, I feel it was definitely probably one of the earliest versions of fan service for a community
2: that has ever graced the silver screen. Yeah, yeah. What what I wasn't ready for as a youth, seeing I I hadn't read Arthur Clarke's Two Thousand One or any of the sequels yet. Yes. So the whole machine connection to Decker, I couldn't appreciate it as much as like okay, it's the Monolith and Hal and and Dave and and the Star Child and and all that stuff. I wasn't getting that this is a this is a riff on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but um, so that even... part was over my head.
1: Even even the thirty minute freaking glory shot to you know as they were panning around the the Enterprise is reminiscent of the Blue Denoual section of uh, Kubrick's two thousand one Space Odyssey. Sure,
2: and and they wanted to be different than Star Wars, right? So they oh, yeah. kind of went to that Kubrick thing. Appreciate how to appreciate the vastness of space in in this different kind of a way. Awesome. Yeah.
0: The uh, issue here. Uh, This is issue four, the July issue from 1980. Um, Do we have any thoughts on the cover?
2: <laughs> <sighs> Let's see. I love the corner symbol. Okay. Yeah, and corner the, symbol's dope. dope. I, I do and enjoy the, that. The monsters have that old, like, uh, Atlas comics or, like, pre-war you know, Captain America's crime and suspense stories by having like the hooded skeleton with a, you know, he, he, he he's just not holding like an hourglass, which he should be, you know, that's <laughs> the only thing missing. It, uh, the cover is pretty, pretty interesting. Uh, just to get
0: your guys' thoughts, is that supposed to be Cthulhu in the lower left corner? Cause I, I mean, would say so. We've always, cause he, he's seen in the issue and we, we only get like little like pieces of his head. Yeah. I'm, it looks a lot like Cthulhu, so I'm hoping that's what they were going with. Cause
2: that's pretty. Yep cool. they just they just had to shorten the tendrils to fit it in uh, <laughs> in the cover, and they had to shorten Spock too. I mean, there's something off about Spock, and that's what what bothers me. And and it's a it's a tough angle because he's positioned like diagonally in the composition, so he's looking at something in the left foreground, but he's reaching like to the r- back of the right and something about the way his chest and head line up just doesn't work for me
0: what i was really fascinated with with the the issue was how in some panels they did such a great job with the likeness and in other panels uh just how sometimes off they look like there's a great one where it looks like between panels kirk had gained like 50 pounds (laughs) that i laughed at when I, i read it the first time
2: i often wonder with that if the you know, creative team was inking the pages or pe- getting the pages produced not in order so it's not consecutive pages but it might be the pages that they did all at the end when they were rushing because of the deadline yeah you know
0: um but yeah just to give the the audience uh, a little heads up so this cover we have uh uh kirk and spock uh and I'm hoping that's not supposed to be McCoy. That's supposed to be one of the security guards in the background, because that is not McCoy-esque at all. They're in a haunted house. And what I really, my favorite part of this cover is you can see the Enterprise through the, the window. So this is something that you can tell is looking into space. And we got a Cthulhu, we got a zombie, and we got death. And they are shooting death with their phasers, and we see a woman in peril running towards us, or running towards our heroes. And I, I know if I were a, a kid and I saw this on the newsstand, I would definitely want to pick up this issue to figure out what the hell's going on.
2: Oh, I did. I was a 10-year-old. <laughs> I, you know, now that you mentioned the guy in the background, I think I notice why maybe Spock's proportions look off. And it looks like they did some uh, uh, production magic on this cover probably in the in the art department because the guy in the back is not his torso is not connected to his lower body at all
0: you know i did not notice that till you said that but absolutely right <laughs> yeah i uh this is a great thing about having super steve on here i mean i I would say that, that we are not amateurs, but when it comes to like a lot of the production speak stuff,
1: speak for yourself. <laughs> I think you have a I'm lot a more knowledge casual. than
0: we do, and I think you bring a lot of that. so i'm I'm glad that you're here to uh, to walk with us through our journey through uh, the Starship <laughs> Enterprise's weirdest voyage. <laughs>
2: All right. My last comment about the cover is: Is Spock giving uh, Kirk the Vulcan nerve pinch there, or what?
0: I think it's a reassuring hand that, if necessary to save himself, I think can easily turn into a nerve pinch. So it's 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 logically it's what he needs it to be.
2: Someone has to stay behind. I choose you.
0: <laughs> I love these uniforms, and the uniforms from the movie are hilariously bad. At it, at it, it, uh, just some of the designs, but. I love the movie for the uniforms just because the like the costuming department went several thousand dollars over budget because <laughs> they gave the guy, they're like, you have carte blanche to do what you want. And he thought like a real military organization, people are going to have multiple uniforms for on duty, off duty, this class of uniform, this class address dress uniform. And I had read something in a supplemental guide years ago that I think had come from the product. I couldn't find it when I went back for this episode trying to find a uh a like a a reference to production but it was something that they had even talked about that over the course of a say a crewman's day while doing different duties he might change his uniform to show like oh the red background on this designates i'm doing this now but now i'm doing hazmat and so he was trying to make it more like a a living breathing organization and i applaud that but i mean how many weird funky like, platform sandals we see at Starfleet Command, it's definitely through a weird 70s prism that makes a lot of the uniforms, I think, very impractical, or just weird leisure gear. But, I mean, just the, the way that he designed it, I thought, just what he, the thought process was innovative and cool, and we get to see some of those real funky-esque 70s uniforms. I, I love their representation here on the cover.
2: <laughs> and part of what I didn't realize, especially when I was reading these as a youth, is that Marvel didn't have the... Rights to any of the original series material or any of the you know expanded universe stuff. they only had the rights to the to the motion picture um, you know stuff and images and characters, and there had only been one. So they only had they could only build off of what happened in that first movie with no references to any of the old stuff or any of the old canon. It, it, it was very limiting.
0: It's always kind of been interesting how the Star Trek license has worked, especially with CBS and Paramount, and when it gets uh when a, a company gets the rights to do something, what they can and can't do. It's always been a bit of a, a quagmire. Sure. This issue we have Marv Wolfman uh, script and uh, editor. Dave Cochran Pencils, Klaus Jensen Inks, Carl Gafford Colors, Jim Novak Letters, and Jim Shooter uh, as the editor. Well,
2: editor-in-chief. editor-in-chief. Marv Chief. had Marv had the special deal when he stepped down from being editor-in-chief. He got to edit his own books that he wrote for, for good and bad. I mean, there's times that writers really should not be their own editor. Um, this issue might be one of those times. <laughs> but this issue also might be and at least it's among the last issues that he wrote for Marvel because he would split to DC that summer. Okay. And and the next issue, that's the second part of this two-parter, is not written or edited by Wolfman. He's gone. It's Mike W. Barr and, and, and Denny O'Neill. Okay. So this could be the last thing Marv ever wrote for Marvel
0: i'm gonna I'll do some research on that for uh the exciting conclusion on this to see if i can uh uh if anything uh, steps at earth stands out that he may have done after this but I think you're probably right
2: Cochram, on the other hand he was a real trekkie he loved the Star Trek stuff he was so psyched to be able to do the the ships and the designs but that those heavy handed inks from Klaus Janssen he's just Love him or hate him. He's one of the heavier handed inkers out there in the business. So he really like I'm not sure I would recognize this stuff as Cockrum work if I didn't see the the credits. And even Dave himself asked for a a different inker, um, you know, all given propers to Jansen. But at the same time saying, I don't think this this combination is really working. But the editors were um, didn't see a problem. So uh, he and we are stuck with it.
0: I've been reading comic books for most of my life, and I don't have that ability to be able to look at something and pick up those details. So whenever I like, listen to you guys on Marvel Noise, I'm always really fascinated by that. <laughs> so, I mean, Fascinating. That's, that's awesome. you got to
2: say it like Spock. Fascinating.
0: <laughs> um, our uh, uh, opening here, our uh, opening splash page, we have The Haunting of Thallus. Do we all agree on that as the uh, pronunciation? Yes. Sure. better than the haunting of phallus but uh <laughs>
2: <laughs> phallus like a thalamus yes.
0: Yes. um and again we get another shot of the enterprise before this haunted house and we have some ghosts and ghost of a werewolf and a ghost of a, a bat and again it's just such a striking visual i mean the you definitely it takes you i think the realism it's hard to imagine like they had done this in like an actual episode what that would look like it's actually a little bit reminiscent if you remember the uh, original series episode of cat's paw huh
1: Uh.
0: or um as i was reading this issue i kind of had a when we get to the the part in the story where we hit this the enterprise hitting this mansion and uh, running into this mansion in space it also reminded me of that episode we talked about a lot on our next generation top 10 uh from the second season of next Gen, the royale (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: because yeah, they just—it's like a Venus-like planet, and there's just a revolving door, and it's this hotel with these like 20th-century, just shallow characters. So there's there are a little bit of uh, small parallels there, but uh, I digress. I,
2: I love the composition of the splash, though. It's like you—you you can see that this the, the you're looking over the shoulder, for lack of a better word, of the Enterprise at this. I mean, it's like the Scooby-Doo haunted house from the original Scooby-Doo credits, with the things flying out of it, going "ah," <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: and you know it's floating in space because behind it is a planet in in the distance. It's yep. just so nicely composed.
0: Yeah, I mean, I just I love that concept. Again, I don't know if you did this with live people, how well it would work. So, doing this with the the in the comic book medium, I think, was kind of a cool choice.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. So, when we start our story here on page two. We learn that uh, this takes place after the uh, completion of their mission with V'ger. Kirk and Spock are meeting with uh, Admiral Fitzgerald at Starfleet headquarters. Uh, they're given their next assignment, which Kirk is not uh, not not too happy about.
1: No, he doesn't seem too thrilled at all. Uh, being told he's got to uh, escort a prisoner to a prison in a, another sector, along with an uh, ambassador of sorts.
0: Yeah, uh... I was pronouncing this ambassador, Regog. Regog. Does anybody else have a a differing or maybe more accurate pronunciation?
2: It sounds a little more Klingon. It works for me. <laughs>
0: and uh, he, oh,
2: hey, wait a minute—is that a little foreshadowing there?
0: <laughs> maybe a little bit. Uh, and I I did like his design. He reminded me of Kubert a little bit. It really yeah.
2: depressed Kubert. <laughs>
0: He's wearing like a cubert yeah, a very melancholy cubert in like a seventies robe.
2: You gotta remember that uh, Ridley Scott's Alien movie was nineteen seventy nine. This is nineteen eighty, so that Alien xenomorph design with the elongated skull and the shell in the front, you know, by with the with the jaw sticking out, is on everybody's mind.
1: Right, but this is like foreshadowing for toys coming up because he's got the Furby
2: eyes. <laughs> So, and I think props props to the um, casting department for getting Lauren Green to play uh, Admiral Fitzpatrick. Oh,
0: you're absolutely right. That absolutely does look like Lauren. I didn't even I didn't notice. Oh that. my god! I almost
1: spat my coffee out. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so the mission that are being assigned is they want Kirk to take uh, Ambassador McGraw or er, Regal to uh, this planet Thalamus because they have an escaped prisoner that they want to they want him to return. And they're insisting it be a starship because of Phallus' proximity to the Klyon border. And then we get a, a screen here of the alien that they will be transporting. And uh, Raytag, his name is Raytag. And like you said, this guy is very reminiscent of uh, Alien.
2: Yeah. I didn't realize they were looking at a screen at first. And I thought that was like the window to the cell. And I'm like, <laughs>
0: whoa, he's huge. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> that was my initial impression as well.
0: I would applaud that. That'd be that'd be a lot of fun. That'd be a real interesting design choice too for like Starfleet uh, headquarters.
1: Yeah, that'd be a pretty ballsy maneuver. The you know architects sitting back there like, "Yeah, let's just put the freaking holding cell right next to the briefing room for these guys. <laughs>
0: we want this admiral to know how unimportant we really think he is. Like this is the <laughs> right when you get first promoted to admiral, that's your office right outside the holding cell." <laughs>
1: Ah, uh, yeah, he seems to be really upset to be in there, though.
0: Yeah, he refuses to go back, uh, so this is, he definitely, this is, he's not a, a, a willing passenger. On the uh, next page here, we see uh, Kirk and Spock beaming back to the Enterprise with Ambassador McGrog. <laughs> and I, I do like that they uh, carry over from the motion picture, Chief Rand is the transporter chief. Nice. <laughs> And uh, we, she was uh, on the original series for several episodes, and she was uh, originally, or she was written out, and there's various stories about the the reasons why, but they brought her back to the movies.
2: Good thing she was in the movie, otherwise they wouldn't have been able to use her. Yep. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> so, I can't believe that the second he gets transported to the ship, he escapes. Like, he's not in there, like, captivity for more than a split second, and already they've Completely failed their mission.
0: Yeah, they yeah, said that he, he breaks through his restraints, but I I, I studied this. It, there's no restraints to be seen yeah. on him. I don't see any restraints. Yeah, not it was even the
1: little zip ties. <laughs> it
0: was the honor <laughs> system of restraints. <laughs> I uh, one of the designs <clears throat> I love best from the movie are the security guards where they're wearing. It looks like white velour uh, like karate geese with laser tag. Uh, vests and helmets over it. So
1: I, I thought it was more photonish than laser tag.
0: <laughs> but it's very invocative of that. So I assume that armor is supposed to help against like phaser blast or something, but it, just, it doesn't look like it does anything. Which,
1: right.
0: If we go to page four or uh, six here, we see that it, it, it doesn't. Because the very first thing, like you said, Steve, when he breaks uh, free, I mean, he gets that phaser off that guy instantly. I mean, there's not even a struggle for <laughs> it.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolute disintegration.
0: I have my to, phaser, please. I have to give Rand credit because I mean, she dives to the floor and is calling for help instantly, which was probably a, a smart move for her to do. And it's this panel on page six that if you look at Kirk, I mean, he looks—I mean, he looks like he's—he's he's, uh, fifty pounds heavier from when he first uh, beamed aboard. <laughs>
1: But you know, they say
2: the transporter adds 50 pounds.
0: I mean, he's got at least the double chin there.
2: <laughs> maybe it's the effects of warp one.
0: <clears throat> I just think maybe when he got in the turbo lift, he got stung by a bee.
2: <laughs> Where's my EpiPen? It's
0: yes. ah. a good thing that McCoy's there with him instead of in the sickbay because he had that EpiPen ready for him.
1: Oh, McCoy's always got his bag of tricks, though.
0: Yeah, well, that's glad. It's, it's a good thing that he's there because they. Uh, Kirk's going down to deal with the situation, and he grabs McCoy, which. It's not like uh, Rand told him that they had a security officer down, so that's a weird thing that the captain is going to run in the middle of this crisis and bring their chief medical officer as well.
1: Well, I, I mean, g- granted, they can't reference anything in the past. Uh, Kirk should know by now wherever he goes, casualties follow.
0: I just. <laughs> it's always been my favorite thing about star trek where like say like the enterprise d you have like a thousand crew members and every away team it's the guy flying the ship the guy who controls the operation of the ship it's like the like the the doctor and the first officer you don't have like you have 50 geologists on board like 20 archaeologists uh 30 botanists and they're never the people to go on it it's always like the people most ill-suited just because we're the people who were there when the call came in
2: just. And and the most uh you know expendab- expendable non expendable people like that's how I feel about the whole next sequence on page seven that it's like this could have been the end of Kirk right there yeah. while everyone else is just standing there watching him do his thing
0: yeah so yeah as soon as they go down there they go to the uh, pylons and as soon as like Kirk is er- it's not even like he's yeah he gets out of the turbo lift and immediately uh, he he has to dodge like Matrix style this shot that like, goes like whizzes right past his head it like parts his hair. <laughs> I that there's
1: he, no pauses.
0: Yeah, I, I hope that he his toupee glue. I mean, he he did some industrial <laughs> strength stuff that day. Yeah, I mean, that phaser was going right for it. So yeah, page seven. Uh, the uh, prisoners escaping up the pylons. We learn that he uh he doesn't have eyes, so uh he sees completely by sonar, and that was kind of a cool. We get a almost like a havoc power effect on the page to show that.
2: Right.
1: And, uh, yeah, he's got his whole echo location going on throughout most of this.
2: Doing the daredevil thing. There you go. And it's
0: more of that xenomorph kind of, uh, influence, like, the way he uses his tail was very reminiscent to me of Alien. Yeah, because he totally whips Kirk, and that's, like, he said, like, another example of, uh, Kirk almost buying it here.
2: Yeah, that could have been his neck. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, right, if, you know the tail could have been poisonous,
0: I mean, that's why Kirk made captain at 30, because if this is how people are commanding ships, I mean, it must be once you hit like that <laughs> command level, just constantly uh, being promoted.
2: High why... turnover rate. Well, it's that's why that's why Bones is sticking with him. He knows he's going to go. That damn fool's going to go down there and get himself killed one of these times. <laughs> well,
0: there's very much a real world analog here. Um, Cruz and I were both in the military. We were armor crewmen, and this was something that they learned that the uh, U.S. forces learned really quickly in uh, when we uh, invaded Iraq. It's if you look at what tanks uh, looked like, the the turret, you would like the uh, TC because ha- usually tanks will roll around with the TC on the outside to help kind of look around and, and guide tank the driver commander. and whatnot. Yeah, that's, what did I say?
1: You kept saying you kept using the abbreviation.
0: Oh yeah, the tank commander. Um, and you would see that after a year, like in country, the armor they built up around the, uh, the, T- uh, the tank commander's hatch to prevent snipers because uh, they had a huge issue with uh, uh, Iraqi forces just shooting uh, the tank commander when they would stick their head out. You know, they have 72 tons of armor and you have the, the leader of the tank, you know, 80% of the time outside of the tank, or at least his head on the outside, doesn't make a lot of sense.
2: Yeah, you need a little periscope, a little submarine action.
0: There are, but it's difficult to see, so what they did was just kind of build a little canopy around it, which, I mean, when you think about it, it's a really stupid thing that you have all this armor, but then you have the most important guy, the tank, sticking his head out, so. Starfleet, by the time the next generation comes around, kind of learns its lesson, but so. Little real world uh, 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 example that uh, sometimes organizations aren't thinking these things out.
2: (laughs) Hey, you can't stop Shatner. You can only hope to contain him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we see Kirk has an idea here. He's going to use the ship's intercom, and he sets up a uh, sonic uh, like backlash to, uh, since he figures the the, cre- the alien tag uses sonic or sonar to see that it's going to negatively affect him, which it does. He starts screaming that they're trying to kill him, which we see Spock come in with the Vulcan nerve pinch, uh, and says, no, this is a very pithy Spock. On the contrary, at this decibel level, it'll take more than 52 minutes to end your life, which we also then learn that this is having a detrimental effect on Spock as well, which is just a little nitpick I had with this whole overall sequence. The time rush on this was they didn't want him to get on the get into the pylons, which are connecting the warp cells to the ship itself, because they would never find him. I don't... I don't understand... It just doesn't make sense to me why that would have been why they would lose him in the pylons. I mean, it's really just a straight tube that goes, This again, this is super freak Mark with my Star Trek knowledge. You know, there's not a lot of room to to necessarily lose somebody. And the, he's the only alien of that kind on the ship. So it, I think it would be relatively easy for the life. But I mean, that's how the, every episode of the show works. You know, if it needs to serve the plot, they're going to forget that they can do something. So, but just a little nitpick I had.
2: I, I was impressed that spock's pinch even works through like a chitinous exoskeleton
0: that's a good point yeah <clears throat> i'm wondering how much of the nerve pinch well i guess i was gonna say works on a psychic level but then we see like data use it in next gen so that's a good point they've never really explained that but yeah that's a really good point
2: it's all in the wrist <laughs>
0: So that takes so. us to, to page 11, where the Enterprise is en route to uh, Thallus, and the uh, Thalosians, I'm going to say, send them coordinates to meet uh, about a million kilometers out from the planet. And while Kirk is, and Spock are, are talking about this on the bridge, we get some steamy action below deck, or below mm-hmm. decks with two crewmen. Wouldn't what's, be Star with Trek.
2: The, what's with the Chiron Williams thing? Like, they... Go as far as to name this guy and let us into his his bedroom for Pete's sake. I I had to look him up to see. I'm I'm not the Star Trek scholar that you are. Like, is this someone I should know or who appeared ever again? And no, the only place he ever popped up is in the real world. A guy named Kyron Williams in 2009 was like a like a murderer in uh, Great Britain or something like that. But since that happened, even though that occurred. 30 years after this comic this character would still be a descendant of that guy right (laughs) so it's like time travel stuff i hate that stuff
0: it's very like you're, you're you're right that's a really good point he's the only real extra character who gets named like his female uh um counterpart here girlfriend sweetheart whatever we get a first name but we don't get a last name but yeah, there are him, Chiron, and, and Lydia are getting intimate in uh, Chiron's quarters when they are interrupted quite unexpectedly by a werewolf.
1: Usually that's <laughs> when you throw the dog a freaking biscuit and tell it to get out.
0: Well, he does. but i mean uh, he he doesn't have a biscuit but uh uh he has a bottle of uh brandy which is a nice callback to the original series because it's referenced there multiple times but uh
2: right i was gonna say i thought they couldn't use anything from the original series
0: i think they got away with it yeah (laughs) but yeah so the werewolf unexpectedly disappears before uh before the bottle hits it then uh, I love this next panel with uh, Chekhov and, and and Sulu. So Sulu's a fencer, and we've seen that with uh, with him before. It's in uh, uh, Naked Time, where he goes nuts around Psy-2000, and he's going around the ship swashbuckling. So that is a sure. reference to the uh, original series. But then he's doing that, which makes sense, and they're in their, like, crazy 70 leisure clothes but while he's doing that we have just check off watching him balancing like a soccer ball on his foot eating an apple and i guess the most inexplicable part of this is he's just sitting there with a in his leisure suit with a phaser <laughs> it just seems weird i'm off duty eating an apple watching my friend work out because you never see him in any other crewman besides—I mean, he is the chief of security on the ship, but you'll never see him just arbitrarily walking around with a phaser at any other point in, like, the movies or, I think, the, the comics. So it's just weird that at this point, to go to the gym to watch Sulu work out, he has to do it heavily armed.
2: Yeah, maybe he just got done at the range. Those foam-padded security officer outfits really would—like, uh, Sulu would fit right in wearing one of those fencing. It would; Those would work. That's
0: a good yep. point. They actually don't look that dissimilar from the fencing costume Picard wore in the uh, Next Generation. Come to think of it,
2: it's just funny how it presents these two. It's like it's like they're a couple of carnies or something. Like you know, <laughs> Chekhov's standing on his head, and you know, Sulu's throwing knives at a target on the wall or something. You know what I mean? It's 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 one step removed from that. Now yeah. that you
0: mention it, I. I I bet if we look through some Dave Cochran issues of X-Men, that Nightcrawler has done that very same thing, like balancing a ball while eating an apple, just kind of hanging out. (laughs) But uh, they're interrupted when a ghost comes out of nowhere and starts menacing them, and uh, uh, Sulu tries to hit it with his uh, sword, no effect. Uh, Chekhov tries with his phaser, and it just ends up disappearing.
1: What hole in the wall did he make with that shot is my question.
0: I assume he probably had it on stun, so some lowly uh, crewman's gonna come by with some, uh, uh, like, Windex or something and take care of that.
2: <laughs> Shooting Shoot. up, though, so it's, like, whoever's, like, in the floor above them, sitting in a latrine or whatever. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Sorry, Commander, I'm late for my shift. I was taking a dump, and all of a sudden I just fell
0: asleep. Can you imagine if you were, like, the crewman in, like, the room next door to uh, the, uh, what's-his-name, Chiron? Because you're probably hearing a bunch of weird sounds anyway, because it looks like he's always getting busy with his girlfriend. So you're immune to those sorts of noises, but then all of a sudden you hear like a wolf like howl and I mean just I'm surprised we didn't hear like somebody like hitting the, the side of the door with like a broom. Like you guys have taken this too far. Yeah, this is this is weird. I don't need to know what you're weird.
1: Must Lay off the story. Yeah, right. <laughs>
0: So that takes us to the next page where uh, Kirk and Spock are, uh, are with Ambassador. Uh, and you guys can take a swing at this name <laughs> anytime you want. Ambassador Ragok. <laughs> and they <laughs> were you
1: just fine, buddy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and they were called down by uh, Raytag, which I keep wanting just to call him Maytag. But, sure. uh, <laughs> and he's enough. begging the captain that he doesn't want to go back. And if they go to back to palace space, that they'll all be their captives, and kind of the same stuff. He's been telling us along the way.
2: So uh, you've seen a lot of star Trek, right? So aren't you totally jumping ahead and thinking, okay, it's going to be a thing where like the, the you know, pri- people who run the prison are actually responsible for the state of the prisoner. And it's going to be a big moral play and everything. Right. I mean, it's star Trek. Kind right? of a day no, of the that...
0: thing from yeah The original series
2: doesn't go that way at all. Nope. Nope. <laughs>
0: So then this completely – we, we learn that the, the ambassador, he is a fierce race. He's very humble and, 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 and non-assuming, but he, we learn he can be vicious when he needs to be. But it's just they leave him unarmed with the prisoner. And granted, I mean, he's in the brig, but I would have felt better if we saw with uh, – if they'd left like a security ensign or something in the room with him. But they uh, go back to the bridge because they're called there by Ahura uh, because of an emergency. And she tells them that they're getting reports from all deck of werewolves and monsters. Which a very off brand Sulu and Chekhov can confirm.
1: <laughs> yeah. Their character models are a little a little off. A little
0: bit. <laughs> so this, is,
2: this this next sequence is my favorite in the issue.
0: <laughs> <laughs> just out of nowhere, we get uh we get uh Dracula.
2: <laughs> Not just any Dracula, but yeah. it's the tomb of Dracula. From Marvel comics around the same era, Dracula, which I love because every Halloween we do another chunk of Tuma of Dracula comics over on Marvel Noise. So and it was just Halloween a few months ago, so I just read half a dozen issues of this book and it was like, Oh, here he is again. It's a crossover with Tuma Dracula for Christ's sake. And who wrote Tuma Dracula? Marvel, Marvel. I enjoy that when Kirk tells
0: the security officers to subdue him. They have their phasers drawn, but they run right at him, like the three stooges, and he just, like, bitch slaps them. And we get a mighty spadook. And uh, Kirk tries to take him out with a phaser that has no effect. We get a cool transformation of him into a bat, and then him into a mist, and he disappears into the elevator. And this is one of those things that stuck out to me, because in Star Trek, they don't have elevators. Um, They're turbo lifts. And I just, I did a, a little research just to make sure that it, I was 90% sure that they had recalled that in the original series, but sometimes when I go back to investigate, you know, like you watch so much of the newer shows, it kind of, uh, uh, you, you kind of muddle that up, but no, they've been calling it, uh, a turbo lift since episode four, the same episode with Sulu with the, uh, swashbuckling, the naked now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it had been turbo some time, sometimes. That was weird, but yeah, that might go into, like you said, where they couldn't use, uh, they were trying not to pull too deeply from the series because of the, uh, the rights issue. Ah,
2: I think Wolfman was just distracted by Dracula. Make, I mean, it's so funny. It, it, of all the different apparitions that we get, none of them talk and stuff, except for Dracula. Like Dracula is right in character and he's talking, "Hey, what am I doing here?" you know? <laughs> and <laughs> I'm going to do this and I'm capable of that and he's like a uh, free-thinking, self-aware. I mean, it's it's Dracula. And also the like we were saying before, it's one of these cases of where the, maybe if he had had a different editor than himself, he would have had someone catch that turbo lift bit.
1: Yeah.
0: They learn that Dracula's down on C deck, which I had to, this is another thing I had to research, because normally starships in Star Trek canon don't have uh, letters, they have numbers. Not always, right. but mostly. But no, it Ooh, is. Yeah. Uh, it's consistent on the... Original Enterprise refit that it throughout the movies it was deck A, deck B, deck C. So that is wow. You're good. Yeah, it wasn't until it was when the the Enterprise A it went back to the the numbered decks. Yeah, I really like this uh, this page here on 17 where we see the ambassador has been killed, uh, presumably by Dracula. Just the crewman who came across him. I just really like how she was drawn, and again she was roaming the corridors with a phaser. And she did not, there was no quarter given to Dracula, none of this uh, set to stun. She just, she immediately uh, lit him up with a phaser on kill and it, it killed him. He crumbled into dust.
2: When I first read through the sequence, I thought that it was a bit where the apparition appeared and she shot at it and then the apparition disappeared and she was the one who had killed the ambassador, which would have put a whole different spin on it, but then with the Uh, comment about the puncture wounds and and seeing them there it's like oh yeah they're two holes it's dracula gotta kill
0: there's a dropped uh ongoing story throughout the series where that's exactly what happened and she panicked and she uh she quickly made those puncture wounds and now she keeps trying to distract mccoy from doing a proper autopsy and it's just uh, (laughs) this ongoing lie on top of lie yeah (laughs) she has to keep giving him soaring brandy Just throw it my way. <laughs> I, I love on the next page. I always love the uh, the previews they put in for Rom the Space Knight around this era. Just how dramatic the uh, the character is landing on Earth. And if you got, uh, I, I'm not sure, Cruz. Have you ever seen like what the Rom Space Knight action figure looks like?
1: Uh, oh no, I've not. It has
0: like four points of articulation. It is. It is the least dramatic-looking thing ever, so I love when they were hyping this comic how just dramatic and cool they made Rom look compared to the actual figure.
2: And he was cool. It was such a great series, and the toy quickly disappeared, and Rom went on for years and years, so that goes to show you i i've been biting my tongue this whole episode as uh every time we pass over one of the ad pages because there are so many great vintage ads throughout this (laughs) oh yeah
1: yeah i like the black hole one that that definitely brought back some memories for me huge fan
0: of that movie so we go back to the bridge kirk and spock have settled back in once they kill dracula uh the apparitions have disappeared and this is where uh they come across the cordons they were given and they uh we see the uh the monster's house in space. And it's very much like the cover or like that opening splash page, I mean, where we see like the planet or like the the in like the or the star like in the background. And uh, it's just such a cool idea. It's just on this like flat plane of land with like a little bit of dirt underneath it and nothing. Right. Again, we get another ship or another scene where they go to consult with uh Raytech and he he we get a very we get a very smug Sonic. I told you so.
1: <laughs> yeah it's a little sassy exactly. there just rubbing it rubbing some salt in the moon right <laughs> <It's>... there
0: <laughs> so page 22 uh we have three of the highest ranking officers and then uh two uh two security officers beaming aboard the uh the, the haunted house again i mean it's you should have Spock, or if you're going to have Kirk, have Kirk. You shouldn't have both of the highest ranking officers on the ship. I always love when oh. they would grab in the original series, uh, Scotty too. so you would have, like, McC- uh, uh, Lieutenant Sulu in charge of, uh, like 420 people.
1: <laughs> well, you know, good leaders lead from the front, right?
0: It's, a, again, a good way for, uh, <laughs> for the rest of the crew to, to constantly move up. Yeah. And, uh,. Well, they're moving across uh, when they're uh, beaming over. Uh, Kirk tells uh, Uhura to keep a monitor beam on them at all time. That is the only time in the entirety of Star Trek canon that we uh, that, that is referred to as a monitor beam. Because usually they just tell them to uh, lock onto their communicator. So I mean, sure. the principle was sound, but it was a very clunky way to say it. But then they energize aboard the haunted house, and it looks exactly on the outside how you would picture. It's dusty. There's spider webs.
2: And there's Rom again. (laughs) There's a suit of armor that's colored so brightly and whitely in silver that it looks just like the Rom ad from the page before.
0: In all fairness, they don't specifically say that that isn't Rom, so.
2: (laughs) It is outer space.
0: I do like that one of their security guards is an Andorian, because they never got a lot of play in in the TV shows, so I like that we get to see a lot more aliens when we move into the comic books yeah um they hear a scream and they go upstairs to investigate and frankenstein is totally double-handed choking a woman like on a bed this looked like it could get a little rapey if they weren't there
2: (laughs) yeah but that's frankenstein's thing is to strangle elizabeth on on her wedding night right so he's he's doing his he's filling his role he's fulfilling his destiny
0: Oh, I did want to mention because they talk of, or Spock points out that this is based off of the Frankenstein legends. And a couple pages ago, Spock had pointed out when talking about Dracula that uh, there were fr- Dracula stories from Earth, and that Dracula was killed by. Um. um uh, it's not Quentin, It's uh, Harker. Uh, having a brain fart. Um. Oh, why am I blinking on uh, the character's first name here? Let me, can't Quincy. Find, yeah, Quincy. I had it in my notes, and we had just talked about it before the show. You know, I'm going to edit that out to make myself appear smarter. Absolutely, uh, but yeah. So, so when I first read that, I thought that was a, an error because they combined the characters of Quincy Morris and, and Jonathan Harker from the book. But no, like you said, this is the that's a reference of uh, from Tomb of Dracula. Uh, the son of Jonathan Harker, Quincy Harker, was in a, 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 a fought Dracula throughout the series. So. My question is, if they're referencing Frankenstein not as a story, but as a legend from Earth, because there was the, the short-run uh, Marvel series that followed Dracula, and then there was the Tomb of Dracula series, if Dracula was real and Frankenstein was real, those took place in the proper Marvel Universe. Are they saying that in the world of Star Trek The Motion Picture, that on uh, 20th century Earth there was Spider-Man and Captain America and the Avengers?
2: Yeah, I mean, heck, we just saw Rom fly by, right? <laughs> yeah,
0: I'm sure and, if you look out the window, you're going to see, like, Nova or the Guardians.
2: And Frankenstein is even wearing, you know, the furry vest. That was his iconic look for the Marvel series. So that's the Marvel Frankenstein.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm wondering if that's something that if the series had run longer, because, I mean, it feels like that Marv... Like, what you said he didn't really... This is his last... If he had stayed on the book, if they either played with that a little bit of... Uh, talking about some of the old earth heroes or that they would have met the Badoon or something like that.
2: Well, they had done it with their other properties. They, they didn't do it with star Wars. They didn't do it with Battlestar Galactica, but they did it with Godzilla crossed over with Marvel things. They did it with the Shogun warriors when they had that series. Um, So they they did it with the transformers a few years later. So they weren't, you know, uh, unwilling to do it. They put Conan in a what if, so uh, they, I'm sure it was on their mind, but I'm, they were probably also being really careful with the license as they first became the caretakers of it. And they didn't have it very long, so maybe they weren't too careful enough.
0: The Transformers <laughs> series was kind of weird because they, they had originally said that G.I. Joe and Transformers were set in a separate universe from the Marvel Universe, and that's why the stuff would not be referenced. But then you're right, there's an issue where Spider-Man appears that kind of throws yeah, right. that out the window.
2: Yeah, right in the original limited series.
0: Yeah. um, I love on page 23, and this is one of my favorite panels of the issue, it's uh, the middle panel on the bottom, where uh they try to they attack Frankenstein, phasers don't work on stun, Kirk doesn't want them to set him on kill, he wants it alive to study. So he does a classic Kirk-Foo, and that is very reminiscent of some of the Kirk-Foo you would see from the original series. <laughs> I just love that panel of him, like, just flying in the air and kicking uh frankenstein and remarkably it works.
2: He takes down frankenstein people with a
1: flying kirk dropkick no but less. But he
0: shouldn't have because he's right in front of a window. So kirk, you would have thought the captain would have some better situational awareness. Cuz what did he think this was going was <laughs> going to happen if he was successful? We've we've already established that The only thing separating them from um, disaster is this thin pane of glass and the rotten wood of this haunted house. Because, yeah, Frankenstein goes right through the window into the front yard. So, theoretically, they should be sucked into space and killed.
2: Dude, that didn't stop Shatner from doing it in the Twilight Zone. There's a man on the wing of this plane. (laughs) (laughs) And he busts the window open and the plane depressurizes and everything. So I
0: okay. Once you put it that way, I mean, this is this is a strategy that's worked for Shatner in the past. So I can yeah. see why this is a go-to. But uh, <laughs> it's and, my move. <laughs> but I love is that it doesn't do anything. They're just looking out into space and they see like rain and lightning and thunder. But yeah, and they can like they're looking at the Enterprise like Chekhov is waving at them from like a window. But yeah, there's just <laughs> nothing. Yeah, it's just there's no loss of uh, of atmosphere. So just the weirdness of that is so cool. Totally. So, uh, they look back, the woman is running towards them, screaming for help, and this is is one of my favorite lines from the episode, careful, Jim, we don't know if she's mixed up with this. (laughs) so
2: weird. Oh, she's mixed up, alright.
0: So, at that point, we see a bunch of monsters materialize, uh, around the gang, and I love, it's that possible Cthulhu, it's either, uh, Cthulhu, or that could possibly, from the profile there, he looked a little bit like Man-Thing totally yeah
2: mm-hmm. which yeah, we it's a great panel a great panel
0: we had just talked about man thing too in the last episode of kill raven we had covered cuz we're doing these a little bit out of order oh uh, yeah that is a great panel where we see uh, a bunch of the universal monsters and cuz i assume that's dracula again is a bat but yeah really cool and again, that these things—they're not projections, as we've seen. Like Dracula had substance to him, Frankenstein had substance, and these things, when they materialize, materialize have substance as well. They don't immediately attack. It's like they're studying them, and then when you least suspect it, uh, they're taken uh, by surprise by Clans from the rear, which is the w- uh, worst way to get taken by a Clan.
1: <laughs> For sure.
0: <laughs> which, if this was Kill Raven, they would have just—they wouldn't have announced themselves. They just would have hit him from behind. Because that's one thing: is we covered the Killraven Raven series. That was his kryptonite. In almost every issue, he gets knocked out from a head blow from behind.
1: Yep. <clears throat>
0: and uh, going to the next page, we have. I love these uh, uh, early '80s uh, hostess advertisements. Yeah,
2: totally. And this the, one's, I think, it was done by George Perez. Looking real close at it.
0: That that will never cease to be impressive. That I, I, you can just look at that and tell that. Uh, that's a
2: that's a perez thing
0: (laughs) i I don't know if either of you guys have ever gone to the sean baby website he was one of those like early internet celebrities but he collected and did commentary on a lot of these uh hostess fruit uh oh that's great and he would have like different characters it would be him then he would do doom uh luke cage and a couple others and uh, a lot (laughs) of fun but then we uh, we see that we cut back to the Enterprise, and we see that Uh, Sulu and Uh, Scotty have problems of their own.
2: Hey, did you notice the gaff with the star dates here? I did the star- not. The star dates have been going up as they should be incrementally, but the last star date that Kirk puts in is seven four one seven point seven. Yeah. And then Mister Scott's on this page is seven four one seven point four so it's it's decreasing and i'm thinking well maybe scotty doesn't know right but the next issue i had to go ahead i had to see what happened to the next issue but the next issue starts off with uh seven four one seven point four consistent with Scotty's. so they went backwards in time accidentally here
0: oh when you're calculating the, uh, a star date, it's different for each person from your point of origin. So, Kirk is from Iowa, so he would necessarily be a little bit, say, uh, you would think behind, but actually before him because of how they calculate the time zones in the 20, 23rd century. So, that's why uh, Scotty from Scotland would have a different, would be point three off. That is my is no that point. a
2: real? Is that a real thing?
0: Nope. That's me going for a no All prize. All right, you,
2: you <laughs> totally got a no prize, dude. I, as as the host of Marvel Noise, I'd like to present you with this no prize. Because well deserved.
0: They. You're right. Because in the original series, they were very careful with the star dates. They would start to move sequentially, and you would see in an episode like a lot of the points would would line up. And even in the original, like in the other series, you would see some of the points do that. But they quickly learned it was too hard to keep up with. And there's really no like the they just randomly would make them up. Except I, for I when,
2: think this is this is the editor again being the writer and not catching it. I think
0: <laughs> it's it's fun when you get to say Deep Space Nine and the Next Generation. Because if like episodes that would air the same week would frequently have the same start date, or then Deep Space Nine and Voyager.
2: Oh, really? Yeah, no, that's cool. Hey, I did like too that now that Scott's on the bridge, that he switches over to the blue and whites rather than wearing the engineer Browns.
0: Yes, which is consistent with the uh, the mini uniforms. Like those are. I'm hoping that they don't have a closet full of those. That they're just using the uh, this. Uh... I think they were still calling them synthesizers and not replicators at that point because I mean that that's <laughs> half a crewman's quarters right there is just uniforms it's a really i love the uh the Kleon battle cruiser there
1: and yeah. it's yeah, yeah it's so really well.
0: yeah it's a Katinga class which we've only seen so far in the motion picture and the the Klaon, how they're drawn, is really consistent with the few clans that we see on the bridge from the motion picture. But we learn that they, uh, the clans they uh, they uh, hail the Enterprise. They tell Scotty that the landing party has been captured and that uh, he needs to surrender to the ship immediately or be destroyed. And we see Raytag is quite despondent, pacing in his uh, cell, when he just suddenly sits down and starts manically laughing. And why is the Mad Magora, which is his race, laughing? Find out! In the haunting of the Enterprise, be here for next issue. Wow! <laughs> and then, consistent with the values of Star Trek, we are advertising BB guns to children at the ba- on the last page of the uh, <laughs> advertisements. So, what do we think, gentlemen?
2: I, I I tried to be on my best behavior this episode so that you'll invite me back for the for the back nine because I got to find out what happens here
0: i was going to do that off air because uh that would be real awkward if can you come back no this was a bit tedious so no i'm glad that uh you'll be coming back yeah i i really enjoyed this issue like i i I, a lot of this the the comic books i like that you mentioned the gold key stuff those especially were really kind of wacky but i really love the star trek comics because of how weird they go in the, the the universe and this was no exception
2: I'll tell you, and you're the Star Trek expert, so I'll, I'll put it to you. But in, in my research, I'm used to done in one Star Trek comic books that um, from what I was able to uncover, this was the first time and not counting the fact that they broke up marvel super special 15 which was the adaptation of the movie into the first three issues just to make their money back on the license and stuff and publish it twice before they you know this is the time before they were publishing trade collections and stuff um so this was a a good opportunity to publish it twice with the first three issues being sequential but this is the first american written original star trek story that has a cliffhanger and goes over into the other issue a second issue and it's the only time marvel would do that during its handling of the property they'd all be done in ones after that and dc wouldn't do it for quite some time too until some of the later stuff in the later 80s so this was really unique at the time of being a a two-parter and i don't know if part of that is because of wolfman exiting or or what was going on but it, it it does seem to be so weird and then also have the the cliffhanger and be such a long epic really feels like they were throwing everything they had into like what can we do for an original star trek thing and have it really make a a blast
0: yeah i I think you're absolutely right i could double check on those gold keys but yeah i i can't think of i haven't read the whole line but yeah i think you're you're right on that and yeah, I love those DC 80s ones cuz they would do some two-parters, but yeah, they were I think rare, but they were much better at they would keep continuity. They would have like characters last 10, 20, 30 issues and have little arcs with them, which was fun. It's also interesting that one after Star Trek 3 and the Enterprise blows up, um, you know that you had a couple year gap between 3 and 4. And in that universe, Kirk is never really punished. He just gets the Excelsior, and then they just go on adventures with the uh, the Excelsior, with him as captain.
2: Interesting. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Very cool.
0: So what did you think, Cruz? Well, <clears throat> uh,
1: not being the extreme Trekkie and not being uh, as well-versed in comic books as either of you, uh, as the uh, filthy casual, uh, <laughs> all I can say is it, this – but a real uh, a sci a sci fi geek myself, uh, this is definitely what you I, for me. It feels like it's definitely what you would get when you take something like Star Trek that was done in the medium of television, and where it's where where its cultural impact was mainly in television. This is what you get when you when you unfetter the constraints of having to costume and make makeup prosthetics. You get a great great variety of aliens and monsters and weird looking xenomorphs just thrown at you it's like someone just like ripped into someone's imagination would grabbed the shovel and just started shoveling (laughs) it in your face so for me i i i enjoyed it just because of the, the the diversity of all the the critters that were thrown your way
2: (laughs) yeah and the monsters and the ghosts and the goblins too it's like they they really did like everything that they wouldn't be able to do on the smaller big screen and and made it be just like a fun exploration of both the american horror culture stuff that we're so used to in pop culture so that every kid reading this knew who frankenstein is and dracula and stuff and then the Star Trek stuff and, and really mashed them up together in a cool way.
1: Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm chomping at the bit to get to, to read on with this. This is, this has been interesting to say the least.
0: So, yeah, so we'll schedule to have our guest, uh, super Steve Raker back. And uh, again, I can't say this enough. Uh, Marvel noise and any comic book noise are two of my favorite comic book podcasts out there. And
1: yay,
0: I, I there wouldn't be a comic book dungeon podcast if it wasn't for the, the Marvel noise content or uh, podcast. You guys were such an inspiration for us. So this has been a real honor for you to be on and I can't thank you enough. Uh, any parting words, anyone?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I like how on the letters page, they have some of the suggestions that people have sent in for different letters page names. So you get where no mail has gone before and <laughs> subspace chatter. Or beam updates, tricorder recordings, and my favorite, hailing frequencies open.
0: Those are all really good. I like (laughs) beam updates. I think that's my favorite.
1: Uh, I I think I'm more partial to the hailing frequencies open.
0: Nice. (laughs) Cruz and I want to thank Steve for taking the time to come on our podcast. Uh, if you want to hear more of Steve, you can go listen to him on the Indie Comic Book Noise podcast and Marvel Comic Book Noise con- podcast, and those can be found at marvelnoise.com and indiecomicbooknoise.com. Uh, if you want to talk to us, leave some feedback uh, for us on the show. You can go to uh, you can email us at podcast at gmail.com if you go to our website comicbookdungeonpodcast.podient.co you can leave us a message on uh the show through discuss uh you can find us on twitter well you can find me on twitter at uh broken lmd like life model decoy and uh if you want to leave us a review you can do so on itunes uh Good news is, as you heard, Steve will be coming back. So uh, we'll be covering the next issue of Star Trek in two weeks. And we just wanted to remind you that at this decibel level, it would take more than 52 more minutes of listening to this show to end your life. Good night, everybody.
2: It's, it's just a TV show. I mean, look at you. Look at the way you're dressed.
0: You, you, you've turned an enjoyable little job that I did as a lark for a few uh, years into a colossal waste
2: of time. I mean, I mean, how old are you people? What have you done with yourselves? You. You, you must be almost 30 Have you, have you ever kissed a girl?
1: There's a, there's a whole
2: world out there. When I was your age, I didn't watch television. I lived. So move out of your parents' basement.
1: <laughs> and, and
2: get your own apartments. And, and grow the hell up. When I mean, it's just a TV show, damn it. It's just a TV show. I mean, are you saying then that we should pay more attention to
0: the movies? <laughs>
1: Lamest bunch. I mean, I've never seen. I can't believe these people. I mean, I I really can't understand what's going on (laughs) here.